0: Islam. What are we going to do with it? Islam is causing lots of problems around the world. We're seeing almost every day as we open our newspapers references to violence that's happening on, in different countries. Uh, certainly it's impacting our lives. It's impacting uh, much of our daily existence. It's impact our airline industry. And certainly there seems to be one group of Muslims that's causing an awful lot of problem. What we're going to do this week is we're going to look and zero in on Islam and we're going to be zeroing in on this group of Muslims particularly and asking how, as Christians, can we deal with them? How should we deal with them? What is it that we need to do? But before that, let me tell you a story. As some of you may know, I, every Sunday I'm down at Speaker's Corner. I go down there with a group of about 30 or 40 Christians. We go down right there to Hyde Park in the middle of London. I get up on a ladder that gets me up about as high as this, podium is right here, and I hold up the Koran in one hand, and sometimes I hold the Bible in the other, and I ask the people there, both of these claim to be the Word of God, but what are we going to do? This one claims that Jesus did not die. This one says he did die. They contradict each other. God does not contradict himself. We've got to come to some conclusions, and I cause an awful lot of debate, and that's what it's for. And a lot of Muslims come at the front of my ladder and they come into the crowd and they listen to a lot of the debates that we have Sunday after Sunday. Back in 2002, there was a, one young man in particular named Asif Hanif. He used to come to that crowd. He used to stand in the, in the crowd and he would listen to what I was saying. And he got to know one of my colleagues. His name was Ben. And Asif and Ben became good friends Asif took Ben to his home, Ben took Asif to his home and they were going to go to a church and to a mosque to basically see where they both worshipped. And then in October of 2002, suddenly Asif disappeared. We asked the next week what happened and he, we were told that he had gone to Syria to learn Arabic, which is quite normal. Lots of young Muslim men growing up there in Britain go to Syria or Jordan or some other Arab speaking nation to learn Arabic. And then in April of 2003, the last day of April in 2003, suddenly we saw Asaf Hanif's picture, along with another man named Omar Sharif, not the actor, another young Muslim, British Muslim. Both of their pictures were on the f- front of the covers of all the newspapers there in Britain. There they were. The day before, they had been in Israel. They had been in Tel Aviv, and they had tried to get into a bar called Mike's Bar. there in Tel Aviv, right next to the ocean. They had tried to get into the bar, inside which there were about 200 people dancing. They wanted to get in there, and they were stopped at the door by the bouncers. Asaf Hanif then pulled his pin on a vest of bombs that he had on his chest, blew himself up, and three other Israelis. Omar Sharif tried to do the same when he pulled his pin. It was a dud, and so he jumped into the ocean, and he drowned. These two men killed themselves the night before. It was all over the papers. People were discussing it. People wanted to know what were these two young English men doing in Tel Aviv, blowing themselves up and trying to blow up as many as possible in that discotheque. Now, that next Sunday, I went down to Speaker's Corner, and I wanted to find out if people were talking about it. And I went from group to group to group to group, and no one was talking about these two young men. And I wanted to talk about it, so I went and got up on my ladder, and I held up their pictures. And I said to the crowd, and I said, I want to talk about these two young men. Who wants to talk about them? And immediately, I just sucked all the crowds from the other speakers, and they came in front of my ladder. And I said, all the Muslims, I want you front and center. I want you right here. I want to talk to you especially I held those two pictures of Asif Hanif and Omar Sharif. And I said, you Muslims who look at these two men, tell me, how many of you support what these two men did? And about 30 of them raised their hands. And I said, amongst those of you who have just raised your hands, how many of you are willing to do what these two men did? How many of you are willing to blow yourselves up right here in London for your God? and 15 raised their hands and as they raised their hand they started punching the air and yelling Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar you could see the horror on the faces of the crowd that had grown that had really doubled by that time they were looking at these young men yelling Allahu Akbar and I turned to the crowd and I said to them look at these men look at their faces memorize those faces This is not a faceless enemy over there in Iraq or Afghanistan or in another Muslim country. It's right here in London. Look at these young men who are willing to blow themselves up and let the whole world know about it for their God. The enemy is right here. Now that was in April of 2003. We all know what happened in July of 2005. When four young men came from north uh, of England, came down to London, and they got on three tubes and on one bus, and they blew themselves up and 52 other English or Londoners Now, I don't know if any of those four young men had been in that crowd that day. It's not important because even today I could still go down to Speaker's Corner on any given Sunday and ask the same question and get the same response as I did back there in 2003. Because even today there are many young Muslim men and women who are willing to blow themselves up. Just last year in 2006, in February of 2006, they did a survey to find out how many Muslims living in Britain wanted to see Islamic law brought to Britain. And 43% of those who responded wanted to see Islamic law brought to Britain. 20% of those who responded said that they agreed with the 7-7 bombers. They agreed with those four young men who had blown themselves up there on July 7th in 2005. The problem is right here. The problem was right there. It still exists. And it's no longer over there. It's now in our midst. What are we going to do about it? Well, I'm going to talk about that this week, and we're going to look into that, and we're going to try to break it apart. We're going to try to look and see what motivates them. We're going to try to understand who these Muslims are, and we're going to do a number of things. And what I want to do this week is go through a number of lectures that help you understand, and those of you who are watching on the video, help you understand not only what Islam is, what they believe, but more importantly, rather than just showing you the problem that exists, I want to give you some solutions as Christians. We're going to talk about this problem of Islam. We're going to try to unpack it a bit. We're going to look at basically the, that which they believe. And to do that, we're going to look at the five pillars, the five practices of Islam, what they call the deen. We're going to try to unpack each one of them and look at them specifically and see if we have a response for them as Christians. We're going to look at the six beliefs of Iman. That's the name they give it, the six beliefs. We're going to take each one of them and try to understand each one of them separately and see if we have an answer for them. Then we're going to move over and talk about a specific application of Islam. We're going to look at Britain specifically. That's where I live. I've been living there for 15 years. And so we're going to look and see exactly what's happening in Britain. Why? Well, we, we could go to many other countries around the world. There are many Muslim countries, there are many other countries where Islam is making an impact, and in every country you will find a different model. Therefore, it's difficult for me up here to stand up here and tell you exactly what Islam is going to do. So we're going to use one country as a model, one country as a paradigm, and then each one of you who is listening, each one of you who is looking at these tapes, each one of you can decide how that model can be replicated or is being replicated and how you can therefore make an impact on each one of those models depending where you are, depending where you live, depending on what Muslims you have contact with. Then we're going to move on and we're going to look at the theology behind Islam. Now, it's interesting when you talk with Muslims, and I hope many of you do talk to Muslims, I hope many of you have a relationship with Muslims. I find that they're the most engaging people to to have relationship with. It's terrific because anytime you engage with Muslims, they're going to have an opinion about who you are and what you believe. I find it fascinating when I go on university campuses. And when you go on university campuses, I go to, usually I go to Christian Union meetings or I usually try to go to Islamic society meetings. And invariably, no matter who I'm talking to, no matter what Muslim that comes into those meetings that I talk to, I can talk right away about Jesus Christ. I can talk right away about who God is. I can talk right away about my own scriptures. That's the lovely thing about Muslims. They love to go to the nub of the problem. They love to immediately move right into religion. I go outside into the hallway and I talk to any other secular student and I mention God or Jesus or the Bible and they usually either turn away or they look at me and discuss or they have something foul to say about me, but not a Muslim. That's the lovely thing about Muslims. You can always talk to God about Muslims. You can always talk about their God and your God. And many times we find that we're using the same name, but we have completely different definitions. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at 13 different definitions or 13 things that we seem to have in common, yet we don't. We're talking right past each other. And I'm going to help you to understand how is it you can start talking and make an impact into each one of those areas. I call it the hermeneutical key. It's my most popular talk. It's the one that my students love the most, and it's the one that we use the most when we engage with Muslims. From there, we're going to go and look at the Bible itself. This book has been Attacked, challenged, Uh, it has been, and this particular Bible I have in my hand really looks like it's been attacked and challenged. I've had it since 1985, and it's been my sword. Everywhere I go, this little Bible goes with me. And it's had an awful lot of abuse. Muslims have tried to steal it three different times. They try to get rid of it because all my notes are inside it. They know that if if I don't have my Bible, I am nothing. Because of that, we're going to go look at the Bible because they're challenging this book right now. All over the world, Muslims are challenging this book. They have to challenge this book. This is their greatest threat. Ah, I lie. This is not their greatest threat. This is their second greatest threat. We'll get to their greatest threat in just a minute. But it is this book that they've got to challenge. Why? Because this book completely contradicts this book. Have you noticed my... Bible is bigger than my Quran. I make sure it's always bigger than my Quran so you know visually which is more important to me. The Muslims use this as their authority. This is their Quran and they uh, when you look at the two you will see that there's lots of contradictions between these two books. This book says that it was a son that Abraham sacrificed. It doesn't give his name. Most Muslims believe that was Ishmael. This book is very clear. That it was Isaac that was sacrificed. This book here says that God never came to earth. This book says that God was not there in the Garden of Eden. This book is very clear. That was God that was walking and talking in the cool of the day. But most importantly, the Quran takes Jesus off the cross and puts someone else in his place, gives his image to another person, completely desecrates the crucifixion in Surah 4, 157. This book puts him and leaves him on the cross, but doesn't keep them there. He dies, and then he resurrects three days later. We've got to come to some conclusion. You cannot have two contradictory books. Muslims know that. We know that. And so the Muslims have been attacking our Bible right, left, and center. They have to. They have no other choice. We've got to have responses, and we do. We've got to have responses to those challenges, and we're going to help you with that. I've been working for 25 years with Muslims, and I get every attack under the sun. I engage those attacks. In fact, I love those challenges because they force me back to my foundation. They force me back to the Bible. They force me to go back and look and see how to answer. And the great thing is we have done our homework. Thank God for those who've gone ahead of us. In fact, I would say thank God for those who challenged the Bible way back in the 1800s. Men like Wellhausen, who there in Tübingen in Germany were the first to go and really take to to part, really tried to, to use historical criticism on this book. And because of those challenges, we went to look and find the responses. And we do have the responses. One of the things I love to do in London... Uh, and if you ever come to London, maybe you can come along on these tours that we have at the British Museum. We do a three-hour tour just going down to the British Museum and looking at all the artifacts there. The artifacts from the Syrian period, from the 9th, 8th, and 7th century BC. The artifacts from the Babylonian period, from the 8th and 7th century BC. The artifacts from the uh, what we call the Persian period, from the 7th and 6th century BC. All these artifacts that have been stolen by the British, brought back to London, and put into one building. And thank God the British stole them, because had they not stolen them, we would not have access for them today. It's because they brought them back to London and they housed them in safekeeping that we can look at them. And it's these artifacts that reproduce and give authority to the Old Testament. They give authority to 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Samuel. You should see the amount of authority that we have there in the British Museum for the book of Genesis and especially for the book of Daniel. It's amazing to see How many artifacts there that support the names, places, dates, events of what is happening in our Old Testament? So that though historians do not like what the Bible says, but they don't like who the God is that's there, they cannot argue that the Bible, as a historical book, has been proven over and again to be credible. And then we go up to the British Library, and uh, if you come with me, it takes us about 50 minutes to get up to the British Library, and we look at two of the oldest New Testaments in history, two of the oldest New Testaments in existence, the Sinaiticus and the Alexandrinus. We look at the Peshta, we look at some of the fragments, and we look and we ask the same question we've asked of the Old Testament in the British Museum. We ask of the New Testament, looking at the manuscript evidence. Oh, we don't just do that, we also look at some Quranic manuscripts, and we ask the same question of the Quranic manuscripts. And it's amazing to me to see just how much more authority we have for the Bible than for the Quran, The Quran, which by far is much earlier, I'm sorry, much more recent. Fascinating to see how much authority. We're going to talk about that during this week. We're going to look and show you how you as well can use the same kind of responses, respond to the same kind of challenges, so that you have no reason in the world to apologize for your Bible. Please don't apologize for the Old or New Testament. There's too much material there to support it. We're going to show you how you can do that. Then we're going to go on, we're going to look at Muhammad himself. Because this is the other problem that Islam has. They are dependent on this revelation, but this revelation needs a model, needs someone to show how to use it. And of course, the model for Islam is Muhammad. Everything is dependent on the Prophet what we call the sunnah of the prophet the sunnah of the prophet which includes the hadith the sayings of the prophet which includes the sira the life of the prophet which includes the tafsir which helps muslims to understand what this book is saying and then the takhreej which would be the, the history of all ma- i'm sorry the tahriq, which would be the history of all mankind leading up until the prophet that's the sunnah of the prophet we're going to look at that and we're going to unpack it a little bit we're going to ask some disturbing questions about what this book says about muhammad we're going to ask some questions about who muhammad was whether or not he can claim to be a prophet We're going to apply the the biblical test to Muhammad because every prophet, every prophet has to prove he's a prophet. And there's four criteria in the Bible that God demands of every prophet to prove, that we demand of every prophet to prove they are a prophet. We're going to apply that to Muhammad. Then we're going to ask whether or not Muhammad could ever claim to be a, a prophet for Jews or for Christians, whether he's only a prophet for the Arabs Whether he is a specific prophet, whether he is a universal prophet, we're going to ask whether or not there's any reference to him because according to the Quran, twice in the Quran it mentions in Surah 7 and Surah 61 that you will find the prophet, it says here, you will find the prophet mentioned in the Bible, in the Taurat and in the Injil. And Muslims have diligently scoured our scriptures to find reference of Muhammad here. And they have tried their hardest. And they think they have found him in Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to show you how they're completely wrong. In fact, I'm going to show you exactly what Deuteronomy 18 does tell us about prophethood. They thought they found it in Song of Solomon. 5.16, I'm going to show you how ridiculous that claim is. And then they thought they had found it in the Injil, in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. And I'm going to prove to you, if you just look at the verses before and after, you will find that has nothing to do with Muhammad. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to unpack that a little bit, looking at Muhammad, and try to help you with these challenges that Muslims throw at us concerning their prophet. They've got to do it, folks. You can see their dilemma. They have to find authority for Muhammad. Because everything rests on that one man. Everything that is in scripture, in their scripture, came to one man. And if Muhammad is proven wrong, then the only the scripture come crashing down, but everything he said, everything he did, all the traditions also come crashing down. We're going to even look at some of the dates of those traditions. They don't come from the time of the prophet. They come from two to three hundred years later. That in and of itself is a problem. So once we deal with that, then we're going to look at the attraction of Islam. True, there are people who are becoming Muslims all over the world. In Britain, the figure is anywhere from ten to 20,000 a year. In the United States, where I originally come from, we know that there's an entire group of people, primarily coming out of the Afro-American community, who have become Muslims. And we want to know why. I did my master's thesis on this very question, and I'm going to show you the 12 reasons that Muslims give, the 12 reasons that these converts give concerning why they became Muslims. We're going to look at each one of those reasons. We're going to look and ask why is it, whether or not these are legitimate reasons, and do we have a response for every one of them. And then we're going to move on. And from there, we're going to look at probably the most important part of what I'm going to do this week, and that is FAQs. Frequently asked questions. What are the questions they're throwing at us? What are the most important questions and how do we answer them? See, the problem we're finding around the Christian world and within the church is that Christians don't know what they believe. And if they do, they don't know know how to say it publicly. We not only do not know how to define what we believe, we don't know how to defend what we define. We're hopeless at that. What's more, even if we do know the question, we don't know how to answer it in a two-minute or a five-minute soundbite. We are verbose. We just continue on in all kinds of permutations, going off on all kinds of tangents. By that time, usually our audience has left. So we're going to tell you, teach you how to answer these questions, these most important questions, how to do so succinctly yet comprehensively. We're going to show you how to do that. It's very important that we learn how to answer those, questions, answer those questions. But we're not just going to stop there. We're then going to throw each one of those questions right back on the Muslims. Because every question they can ask us, we can throw right back on them. Because they, by far, have the greater problem. I get sick and tired of hearing Christian after Christian only talk about the problems of Christianity and try to defend every one of their challenges without asking the same thing of Islam. Because Islam, by far, has a big, much more difficult time with Scripture. Talk about manuscript evidence. Oh my goodness, let's look at the Muslims' manuscript evidence. Talk about the problem of whether Jesus Christ is relevant for today. Let's look and see if Muhammad's relevant for today. If they want to talk about the Trinity, let's look at their Trinity. And it goes on and on and on. Every question we have a response for, and we need to start responding. I want to see Muslims ask these questions, and we're going to show you how to do that. All right? Because I want to see us basically engaging publicly with Islam. We've got to engage publicly with Islam. Now, we may put in there a a whole area of what to do and what not to do, do's and don'ts, methodology of evangelism, because there's a lot of mistakes we make. Also, there's a lot of questions that you need to be aware of that are what we call logical fallacies. These are fallacies that Muslims throw at you that they have no right to throw because they have no idea of the supposition or the presupposition, the basis from which they're asked, and we need to to know those presuppositions so that you don't get hanged by them. And we're going to show you how to look for these suppositions, to look for these fallacies, and to throw it right back in their lap so you do not get stymied by them. We find at Speaker's Corner that so many new people, when the first week they get there, they completely feel uh, overwhelmed by the aggressiveness, but also by the questions themselves, when there's no reason that they should, because they don't know the agenda of the Muslims. We're going to help you with that. We're going to show you why is it they're asking the questions they're asking. We're going to show you what's behind those questions. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you then how to answer those challenges, to give these tools that you can use in public. Now, these are things that we have learned in the last 15 years at Speaker's Corner. Every Sunday, whenever I'm in England, I'm at Speaker's Corner. Our whole team is there, and we're putting together, bringing together as many of these challenges, and we're coming up with answers to every one of them. We want to share that with you. Our experience, week after week, we're dealing with some of the most aggressive Muslims on earth. We're going to show you how you can take them on. Define them, answer them, and then throw them right back. And you will see in every case we come out on top. That's the lovely thing I love about apologetics. That's what we call apologetics. And polemics. That's what we call polemics. See, it's fascinating to me. We have sports... All of us have sports, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in Australia or, or in the United States. We all love sports, do we not? And we all know that in any sports team, any game, you have to defend against the challenge. Let's just use soccer or football, depending on where you're coming from. Let's use that as an example. In a football game or a soccer game, you need to have your defense, don't you, to keep the other team from scoring goals. We have great defense. Now, those are your apologists. They are there to defend the goals. And that's what we've done in Christianity. We've been great at putting together apologetics. There's many schools of apologetics. In fact, most Bible schools, most seminaries teach apologetics. But you don't win games by simply defending the goal. How do you win games? By scoring against the other team. That's what we call polemics. You need your strikers to score, your midfielders to score against the other team, and that's the way you get goals. But ironically, we have no, we have no idea how to do that as Christians. There, is, there are no schools in polemics. In fact, I would imagine most of you watching this and most of you sitting here probably did not even know what polemics mean, because it does, it's not part of our lexicon. There's not one school in the world that teaches Islamic polemics. Why isn't it? To me, I find that fascinating, because when I open up my Bible, and when I look at the New Testament church, and especially when I look at Paul's ministry, his whole ministry was involved with apologetics and polemics. The best defense is a good offense. Good old Vince Lombardi. He knew exactly what he was talking about. We're always put on the defensive by Muslims. Well, I want to start putting the Muslims on defense. I want to start showing them that they've got a problem with their scripture, they've got a problem with their prophet, and the best way to do that is to learn polemics. So we're going to teach you how to use polemics. This is probably one of the first times you've heard how to do that. We're using it now in London at Speaker's Corner, and we're having huge effect because for the first time Muslims are being put on the defensive, publicly. We're going to teach you how to do that, then we're going to look at some of the methodologies that are being used around the world in missions. We're going to try to look at quite a number of them. We're going to try to unpack each one of them. We're going to show you the weaknesses and the strengths for each methodology. We're going to show you what is used in certain parts of the world that doesn't work in other parts of the world by this, hopefully, those of you who are watching and those of you who are right here, you can therefore, in your own ministry, you can decide what methodology works. Because what works in Kyrgyzstan will not work in Kazakhstan, will not work in probably Pakistan, but may work in Australia. It depends on who you are, depending on who's standing in front of you. I find it fascinating. On any given Sunday at Speaker's Corner, I may speak seven minutes with somebody from Saudi Arabia, and as I'm speaking to them from, a, from an Arab mind, I'm just sitting there going in circles. Because for an Arab mind, that's how they think. Their logic is cyclical. I ask them, how can you know? Can't you convince me? Tell me, how is it you know that Muhammad is a prophet? And They say, well, because the Quran says so. Okay, so how do you know that the Quran is authoritative? Because Muhammad says so. Well, wait a minute. How do you know that Muhammad? Because, the, can you see, we're just going in a circle. There's nothing outside, and that's so typical of an Arab mindset. I find if I have a Turk standing in front of me, who claims to be a Muslim, I have to basically tell him what he's to believe before I can tear it down because he has no diddly swat about what he believes because most Turks just do not know what Islam stands for. I find much the same way with the North African Arabs and North North African Muslims. They are very clear as to what their political standing is. They know all about the politics of Islam, but as far as their theology, they know very little. When I talk to an Egyptian, it gets a little better. They do know their theology. I think they've had a lot more impact because of the Coptic church there within Egypt. But when I get an Asian, somebody from the Indian subcontinent, somebody from India or Pakistan, especially those two countries, when I get them in front of me, I have to take a deep breath. I know I'm in for a real tussle. I know that that individual knows my scripture in fact I am astounded how many young men and women who come out of Pakistan and India they come with my Bibles in their hands and they have little tags all through my Bibles with supposed contradictions in my Bible with supposed errors they have done their homework they know exactly how to attack me at my foundation thank God for them because they're jacking me out of my complacency and they're forcing me to go back to my scriptures and find the answer good for the Indians good for the Pakistanis I think God has brought them into our midst for a reason. He knows that we need to be woken up as a church, and they're doing a good job at doing just that. So we're going to teach you how to take these on, and we're going to teach you and show you that there are many different methodologies that work for many different kinds of people. There is no one methodology. I hear missionary after missionary say, this is the only way to do it. This is the only way that God ever uses. This is the only way that you will ever convert Muslims. No, please don't ever say that, because Islam is much more of a mosaic just as Christianity is a mosaic. And as you have Japanese Christians who are different from Korean Christians, who are different from Nigerian Christians, who are different from American or Australian or New Zealand Christians, the same exists in Islam. Culture does impact on religion, and certainly theology impacts on culture, and so therefore we cannot be so simplistic to believe that there's only one methodology that works. So we're going to look at a multiplicity of methodologies. What we're doing in London, you may not want to do anywhere else. In fact, I don't think anybody else is doing what we're doing in London because we have a unique place in London called Speaker's Corner. It is the only place on earth where we can do that. But we can model for you the possibilities of what can exist in other places. So we're going to have a good time. We're going to go through each one of these areas. I'm sure there's going to be a myriad of questions. I know you will have to ask them at some time. And for those of you on video, there's no way you can do that except... Hopefully, hopefully, try it out yourself. See if these work. See if they help you in your own ministry. But more than that, for heaven's sakes, get to know a Muslim. Find the Muslims in your area. Find the Muslims in your community, in your school, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe right next door. Maybe where you work. There are Muslims all over. They're coming to our countries. It's terrific that they're coming Not only as immigrants, they're coming as students, they're coming as doctors, they're coming uh, for social reasons, they're coming for economic reasons, they're coming in their hundreds, their thousands, sometimes even in their millions. And they're going to have to come into our presence. Find them. Look for them. Engage with them. Let them know who you are. Tell them that you're a Christian, that you believe that the Bible is the word of God. Start out that way. Tell them that you believe Jesus is God, that he came to earth, God can come to earth, that he came and he died and he rose again. Start that out and see how they react. Once you get to know a Muslim, you're gonna find that they're gonna probably have a lot of questions for you. Questions concerning who God is, who man is, who you are, why you become a Christian, why you continue to remain a Christian. What about your scriptures? What about the Pauline paradigm? We're gonna go through, they're gonna have a lot of myriad of questions for you. You need to have answers for that. We're going to help you with those answers. And then we're going to show you how you can take the same wit, put it right back in their lap. Islam is growing. Yes, it is growing. The statistics seem to bear that out. Right now, as we look around the world, we can see that um, there's about 1.6 to maybe 2 billion Muslims in the world today. When I started working in Islam, it was back in 1981. I went to a seminar, something like what we're having right here. A one-day seminar on Islam. I went with my wife, my new wife at that time. We'd just gotten married. And we were told back in 1981 that there were 800 million Muslims. That's a big number. It goes in this year, it goes out this year. You don't really pay attention to numbers like that. How can you? It's too big to understand. But then we were told another number, which really bothered me. We were told at that time in 1981, there were only 1,500 missionaries, Christian missionaries. Out of 138,000 missionaries, only 1,500 were working amongst Muslims, which came to about basically 2% of all missionaries. I could just, it was like, slap me, slapping me across the face. I remember turning to my wife, Judy, and I said, what in the world is going on? Only 2% of all missionaries working in the the religion that is growing faster than any other, the religion that is attacking us at our foundation, the one religion that is basically all over the world, that is confronting Christianity, its theology, its scriptures, its Lord. Why only 2%? Why are we sending only 2% to this religion? We went to our mission organization, we asked to send, for them to send us to the Muslim world. They didn't have any place to send us. They weren't working with Muslims. And this was the case back in 1981. And we were seconded to other organizations, and now I have been working for 25 years. I have been working with Muslims. And I thank God I have. Now, I didn't get a polling call in the sky. I didn't have a love for Muslims. I, I, my call was basically those two numbers. That's all it was. Two numbers that I saw put in front of me. And I got angry. Because I remember when I read back in Romans 15, where Paul says, I make it upon myself, I go to where Christ is not known, he says in Romans 15. I go to where Christ is not known. I do not want to build on anyone else's foundations. Look and see what Paul's saying here. As Christians, we need to go to where Christ is not known. Now, you may say, hold on a minute, they know Jesus Christ, they call him Issa. But stop and look and ask yourself, look at the Issa that you find in this Quran. Is that the Christ that we know? Even the name's wrong. As we're going to find out later, Issa is not the name for Jesus in Arabic. The name for Jesus in Arabic is Yeshua. So why in the world did they get Issa? Well, we now know the reason for that. The reason for that is because it's been borrowed from Syriac. Yeshua, uh, as we see in, in Syriac, Good, um, the majority of references to Jesus in this Quran, there are 73... Uh, Ayahs, 73 verses that talk about Jesus in this Quran, almost, well, I won't say exactly how the number, but the majority of those references come out of Syriac documents, primarily the Diatessaron, from the 5th century. They've just taken a Syriac name for Jesus. They've got the wrong name. They've got the wrong Jesus. They have no idea who Jesus is. He's nothing more than a man. Yes, a messenger, one of the greatest messengers, second only to Muhammad, but he is not God, that they're very clear about. He did not come to die on the cross, that they're very clear about. And he did not resurrect. And if Jesus did not come and die and resurrect, then I'm damned. We've got to show them the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the first century Jesus, not a fifth and sixth century Syriac construct. We've got to bring them home. Not to work on anybody else's foundations. I don't think anybody can look at the Muslim world today, that, that 1040 window between the 10th and 40th parallel where the Muslims are predominant and look and see. That's the least evangelized part of the world. It's also the poorest part of the world. 800, 800 million Muslims with only 1,500 missionaries just 2% of the missionary population, you're not, going to be, you're not going to be building on other people's foundations amongst that large group. It's an open world. We need to have workers. I turned to my wife and I said, what are we going to do? That was 25 years ago. Since that time now, Islam has now doubled. It's no longer 800 million. It's anywhere from 1.6 billion up to 2 billion. Missionaries have also doubled. We're about 5,000 to 6,000 missionaries, but we're still completely overwhelmed by Islam. We need more workers. We need more training. And we need to start going public. Now, I can't think of any way to do that than to go back and use the model that we see in the first century of Paul himself. Good old Paul. He's probably the best example that we have to do just that. I'm going to talk about him a little later uh, in one of these lectures, but let me just give you an introduction of what I like about Paul. See, Paul is an amazing man. Everywhere he went, he got into problems, didn't he? Nobody liked Paul. Every time he went into Berea or Laodicea or Cappadocia or there in Ephesus, one of the first things he did, he went right to the synagogues, did he not? And why did he go to the synagogues? Because he went to go into those synagogues to confront the leaders in the synagogues. That's my Paul. He went to confront Oh, they did not like Paul. Goodness sakes, everybody hated Paul. Oh, they threw him out. They turned their backs on him. At times, they threw him into prison. Twice, they tried to stone him. uh, Twice to death, he just got back up and went to the next city. He even caused a riot in Ephesus, as we remember. And then finally, they killed him in Rome. You don't get thrown into prison or stoned or finally killed for just coming along and basically being nice to people. No, obviously, Paul was a man who knew how to confront. And he did so publicly. He's a model of what we need today. Why? Well, take a look at Paul and you will see a lot of similarities between Paul and many of the Muslims we're dealing with. Because before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And as Saul, he was a very religious man, as many of my radical Muslims are. But as Saul, he was more than just a religious man. He was a Pharisee, as many of my religious radicals are. They are also learned men who love their scripture. As Saul loved scripture, so they loved scripture. As Saul was legalistic, so were they legalistic. As Saul was a man who used the scriptures, and, and basically, uh, in some ways, you might say, abuse the scriptures, so do the Muslims use the scriptures and abuse the scriptures. Saul wanted to create a theocracy, so do my Muslim radicals want to create a theocracy. Saul wanted to use the sword. Remember, he was on his way to Damascus to basically imprison the Christians and bring them home in chains, and if they refused, he was going to kill them, so do many of my religious radical friends want to use the sword. You can see a lot of parallels there, can't you? God met Saul on the road to Damascus in a dynamic way. And he took away that sword and gave him a much better sword. And here it is in my hand. This is the sword that Paul used. Not Saul, but Paul used. When Saul became Paul, he still retained all the abilities he had as Saul. Do you notice that? Look and see. As Paul, he still knew his scriptures, did he not? As Paul, he still used it. But this time he applied it correctly. As Paul, he's still confronted as Saul confronted. The only thing difference between Paul and Saul is that Paul no longer used a sword. Isn't that interesting? He never used a sword after that. He didn't need to. He had something a lot more powerful. We need to find our Pauls. No, let me correct that. We need to find our Sauls. We need to find our Saul's and Sauline's. We need to, I don't know if that word even exists, but we need to find our men and women, these radical Muslims, who are just like Saul was back in the first century, so they are today. And they are the ones who are going to turn Islam out, because they already understand their own scriptures. They understand this book better than many of the other Muslims. They are reading it, they are applying it, and they are actually living it out. They are the ones, therefore, that can destroy it better than anybody else, as Saul destroyed what the Pharisees were doing when he became Paul. So we need To find our Sauls and Saulings in our Muslim communities to do the same. I want to be the first to help them out because I know this book needs to be destroyed. When Saul became Paul, God still retained all those abilities he had. So that's why I think he chose Saul for a reason. He knew that Saul was a man who was an opinion leader in his community. He had status in his community. We need to find these young men and women, these radical Muslims who have status in their communities. Do we not? We need to bring them through so they become Pauls and Paulines. That's a word that does make sense. We need to find our Saul and Saulines to make them into Paul and Paulines. Boy, that has a ring to it. And then we need to send them right back into their own communities because they are the ones that are going to make more of an impact than anybody else because as Saul made an impact as Paul, and look at the legacy he left us. Look at the letters he wrote. Look at the book of Romans, the ability he had with his mind. We need men and women like that. Men and women who have that capacity. Men and women who have that charisma as Paul has that charisma. We need those kind of individuals if we're going to stop radical Islam. Help me find our souls and Saulines. Maybe I'm looking at some even today. I hope so. Because I don't think we're going to stop this religion except we are the only ones that can do it. Why do I say that? And I'll be saying this a few times throughout this week. What I have found is that the world thinks that radical Islam can be fought, can be stopped by using weapons of this world. They think that they can be stopped by using bombs, bullets, and cruise missiles. Now stop and think. What is it that drives these radical Muslims over here? Well, it's this book right here. And it's the Prophet Muhammad. It's an ideology that drives them. It's an ideology based on revelation and modeled by a man. How do you destroy an ideology like that? You cannot destroy an ideology like that using any types of weapons of mass destruction that we have today. No, you don't destroy an ideology like that. The only way you can destroy an ideology like that is with a better ideology. And who do you think's got it? We've got it right here. We've got it. Paul knew that. Jesus knew that. The early church knew that. You know that. I know that. Don't expect the government to fight this battle. Because in order to take on these individuals, in order to take on these radical Muslims, you're going to have to take on their ideology. In order to take on their ideology, you're going to have to start attacking this book. The government cannot attack this book. They dare not. Look and see what happened at Guantanamo Bay when one of these books, one of these Qur'ans was supposedly flushed down a toilet. Can you remember the riots that happened all over the world? Look and see what happened just last year when they tried to mimic or mock the prophet Muhammad. You cannot take on the prophet. The government, no government can take on the prophet or the Quran without having des- desulterious effect. And that is well understood. We saw that exactly what happened last year when the Danish cartoons tried to mock not only the book but the man behind the book. Don't expect the government to do that. That is not their remit. We separate church and state. The church is the one that's going to have to do that. Why? Because we understand what makes them tick. We understand what motivates them. We know it's this book. Don't expect the secular world to understand the power of this book. They don't understand it. They don't even read it. They don't even care about it. You don't hear them quoting it. We understand the power of this book because we start from the same paradigm. But this book, it is this book that gives foundation to everything we believe. It is this book that motivates us. It is this book that we find God. It is this book that we find what we're to do. And so therefore, we understand why Muslims are so motivated by this book. Therefore, we're the only ones that can take them on. We're the only ones that know its weaknesses. We're the only ones that can do that part because we do not belong to the state. We belong to the church. We separate the two. Therefore, we don't have the same problems the state does. See... I remember my Prime Minister, and I live in Britain now, I have for the last 15 years, my Prime Minister, Tony Blair, he's no longer Prime Minister, I should be careful, he's just now been replaced by Gordon Brown, but Tony Blair, he should say a number of times, he said, I have read this book three times through. I have read the Koran three times through. And when I read this book, all I see is peace and tolerance. I would love to know what Koran he's reading. But you and I know, those of us who've read the Koran, know that this book is full of violence. In fact, there's 149 violent verses in this book, in the Medina surahs. So, what was Tony Brown saying? Uh, Tony Blair saying? Getting the two names mixed up. What was Tony Blair saying? Tony Blair had to say that because he's a politician. As a politician, he has a constituency that he's responsible. They vote him into power. Many of those in his constituency are Muslims. Therefore, he cannot say anything against their book or against their prophet. Therefore, you will not find Tony Blair or George Bush or any other government minister who will ever come out against this book in public. They dare not do so. You can imagine what would happen. What if Tony Blair did say, well, I've read this book actually three times through, and boy, there are a lot of violent verses in this book. I'm a little troubled by what it says. In Surah 9, Ayah 5, for instance, slay the unbeliever wherever ye find them, besiege them, lay in wait for them with every kind of ambush. That is not a peaceful verse. What do you think would happen the next day? There would be vigilantism all over the streets. Every one of the ambassadors of the Muslim countries will pull their ambassadors home and they demand an apology from Tony Blair. Can you see the problem for the governments of our world? They cannot, they dare not, they will not criticize this book. They wouldn't be in power very long. But see... I don't have that constituency that I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible to any constituency except Jesus Christ. The only person I'm responsible for is Jesus Christ. And the only example I have is Jesus Christ. And when I look and I see what Jesus Christ did to those who stood against him, I go back to a chapter like Matthew 23. There in Matthew 23, the entire chapter from verse 13 to 33 is full of confrontation. You hypocrites, you den of vipers, you white sepulchers, over and over and over again, there is my Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. He knew how to confront. He knew how to confront the authorities of his day. Remember, he was confronting the Pharisees. But when Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night with an open heart, Jesus responded in kind. He didn't just use one model, and we're not to use one model. But when we are confronted publicly, as radical Islam is now confronting us publicly, we've got to go back and see the model that was used in the first century. We need to look at Jesus Christ, and we need to look at Paul. He's the best example we have, and what a model for today. Folks, it's gonna be fun to finally find radical Christians. Because we are the only ones that can take on radical Islam. Not the government, not the media, not the secular world, not the humanist. The only people that can really take on Islam are people from within the same tradition. The brothers of Islam. And the most radical Muslims are the ones who stick strictest to their text, The only ones who can take those people on are the most radical Christians who stick strictest to their text because we have the only text that's the alternative to this text. The only revelation which makes sense, which will bring peace, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want peace today, and everybody wants peace, even Tony Blair and George Bush do want peace, bless their hearts. Most of my Muslim friends do want peace. You better not come to this book. And you better not come to the prophet to whom this book is revealed you better come home you better come back to the gospel of jesus christ and you better come back to the man who exemplifies that jesus christ oh he was humiliated oh he was whipped oh he was nailed to the cross and how did he respond father forgive them for they know not what they do that is the message for today we've got it we've got him and we've got the message that the world needs to know. This week, I hope to share that with you. This week, I hope to equip you for to do that. Because the world is, is going to go quickly to Islam if we don't stop it. We've got to stop it. And we're the only ones that can. Are you with me? Let's go and get it then.